My name is Mike King. I am the writer and producer of Wild West Podcast. The story you are about to hear is fictitious, but portions of the story are based on factual accounts. This is the story of a mischief maker by the name of Luke McGlue. In the mid-1800s, the people of Dodge City had a legendary person in which they could blame all sorts of mayhem. His name was Luke McGlue. He was credited with many devious deeds. Many individuals within the community would pull a prank, then pass it off to another individual or to a fictitious person by the name of Luke McGlue. The story takes place in 1877, a time when Dodge City, Kansas was full of pranksters. In the story, Luke visits the Boot Hill resting grounds and meets up with a few unknown characters to administer the Keeley Cure. We would like to ask all our listeners to stay tuned after this show as Brad Smalley and I will discuss the facts and fictions of the show. Now, without any further delay, I would like to introduce our narrator, Mr. Brad Smalley, a Dodge City historian and featured guest artist on the American History Channel, Gunslingers. My name is Luke McGlue, better recognized in southwest Kansas as a mischief maker. That is, I deliberately make trouble for others. Most people who know me say I show immense charisma. I have a gift of putting a smile on a man's face. When a man disagrees with me, I turn on me elegance with selected wit and a smile. Everything I do in life turns out in my favor. Important men surround me, hoping some of my sparkles might rub off on them. I have this keen ability to spin a web of fascination around everyone who employs my humor. I'm a real charmer. I'm creative, too. I'm good at playing out abstracted confusion, in the same way a midget is good at being short. It was on the eve of Halloween when I, Luke McGlue, rode into Dodge City, a night that marked the end of summer and the ancient harvest rituals, a night which is noted for the beginning of a dark, cold winter, a time of year which is often associated with human death. It was the time of year when the ancient ones pondered upon the birth of a new year. This they called Halloween. The Hallow Night of October 31st. This was the evening when a boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain, a night when the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. I tied my horse to the hitching post and noted in the half-light of the evening that the streets was empty. A gust of dry wind twisted around the maze of saloons. The wind made the gas lanterns glimmer out from the eerie streets. The saloon doors next to me hung on a few threads of their hinges. They groaned with pain on every sway. 
Tumbleweed socialised across the crackling dirt on the north side of town. The Lady Gay Saloon was at full tilt when a gathering of cowboys bursted into the streets. They all laughed while one pedestrian scattered inside with the whip of wind. The air smelt as if it had not moved in years, festering like a stagnant pool of water. Dick and I had arrived late. I reached into my pocket to check the time. But no, it was 6.30pm. I looked out in a westward direction. The setting sun gave off an orange hue, casting a dark shadow over the town. A half-moon was low on the horizon. The moon gave off less light by the minute, and did little to relieve the dark shadows. The glimmers of light danced in the October streets. Where are they? I thought to myself. But then again, where is everyone? We were to meet at six o'clock to administer the Keeley Cure, a particular cure for a die-hard drunken judge. Since I found myself wanting, I thought I would come up with some ideas of my own on how to administer the Keeley Cure. So I walked over to where our first city jail once stood. It was now boarded up as an abandoned dry well, some ten feet in depth. The location of the well was on the south side of the Dodge City Flour Mills Company. In the early days, this well served up the first Keeley Cure to all the town drunks. The local vigilance committee would gather up all the drunks from the bars and streets and lower them into the well. The drunks were allowed to stay until they sobered up. When they were able to climb out of the well unassisted, they were declared sober and their debt to society paid in full. I remember one cowpuncher that spent the night in a well with me. A little past three a.m. in the morning, his whispering voice exclaimed, I am awake and feel the cold, damp earth all around me. I must be in Hades, he said. I'm a lost soul for sure. The cowpuncher then looked up and saw the blue sky and the stars. <laughs> he called for help. Help me, he screamed, help me. The devil is taking me soul. I promise to live the life of a sober man. As the cowboy looked up, he saw a dark shadow from above. A grizzled old buffalo hunter peered down at him with a look of disgust on his face. "'Serves you right,' yelled the hunter. "'If you can't carry your liquor, leave it alone. "'Stay there or crawl out yourself. "'That'll be your keely cure,' he concluded. "'I can say, while there is no evidence "'that this method affected a cure on the man, "'he sure embellished the fact that he had gone to hell.' "'The truth remains that the drunks who had experienced "'a day or night in the well "'kept their weather eye open for a sight "'of the city's first appointed marshal.' The first appointed marshal during those days was Billy Brooks. He is able to spot a drunk a mile away. When Brooks and the vigilance committee were in sight, the drunks scattered for cover. I stood alone in the centre of the street. Where are they? I thought to myself. It was Halloween night. The faint stars now disappeared and became lost in the mist beneath the clouds. Hardly a soul was about. Not even the saloons were noticeable. The lack of noises engulfed me. The quiet night captured my brain, rendering any logical thought or conclusion impossible. The air felt close and sticky, despite the dry wind. I decided to visit some of my friends at the Boot Hill resting grounds. I walked over to the north side of the tracks and climbed the slope of the hill. The resting grounds were dark. It was kind of darkness that robs you of your best sense and replaces it with a paralyzing fear. My feelings for this place was like the spirit of the once-living 
rising up from their resting sites for a ghostly visit. In this darkness, I walked among the markers. Some of them were etched out with a name and some not. The markers were made of scrap wood in the form of a cross. There was no wind. The air became stagnant. Suddenly, the wind about me gusted up a howl, a wind soft and whining as if the gale was to bring a storm upon me. Given the lingering heat of fall, the gravesite was cold enough to raise the hairs on my bare arms and neck. History lives here, I thought to myself, with the ghosts and the ghouls. Under slivers of moonlight, I saw phantoms pass by, never once acknowledging my presence. But they're locked in another time, visible but somehow dislocated from the here and now. My thoughts questioned this place. How could a place be so full and empty at the same time? From when their bodies became stale and cold, they became a corpse, not a person. Whatever I came for is not here. The graveyard's full of the decay and remnants of bone and flesh. It was empty. There was nobody here but me. In front of me was a wooden marker of Lizzie Palmer. I remembered Lizzie well. She'd quite the past and made her legacy as a prostitute in several cowtowns before she came to Dodge City. Lizzie worked in the red light district of Caldwell, Kansas. She was brought to card for obstructing the law and resisting arrest. The attorney representing her handed a note to Justice of the Peace, Ike N. King, which read, Ho, Ike King, I hope you'll decide to my liking, for I'm sleepy and tired, and I want to be fired, out of court, for a spell, over Prairie and Dell, over Morris and Fell, till I light in Caldwell, in the Leland Hotel, and sleep forty winks without waking. Oh, Ike King, oh, hell. The judge was so impressed by the attorney poetry that he wrote on the back side of the note. He danced all night until broad daylight and defended the horrors in the morning. The case was dismissed, and Lizzie left for Dodge City. It was in Dodge City that Lizzie met her demise. Her soul is now resting before me in this hallowed ground from an infected wound caused in a love dispute over Bat Masterson. I looked over to my left to see who was buried next to Lizzie Palmer. The wooden marker etched out the name of J.M. Essington. Unfortunately, Essington served up one of the first plots on this burial ground. He suffered his injustice over whiskey and anger while celebrating the completion of Dodge City's first hotel. Essington, a, a carpenter, built the Cox Hotel. He got into the whiskey bottle too deeply and started slandering the cook. The cook took offense to his nagging, pulled a revolver from his pants and shot Essington dead. Now Essington lies among the many who suffered an early retirement to this hill, a burial ground less visited by the living, and haunted by the early arrivals to Dodge City. I looked out over the dust-covered mounds. It was then that something started with a slight shimmer, and the air in front of me was being warped and twisted. At first it was soft as a whisper and sounded quite distant but it grew in intensity until it was right next to my ears. Then in a flash of pale, silvery light, a man appeared before me, a man which I recognized. The man was dressed in old clothes. He wore a crisp, white button-up shirt, sleeves rolled up to the elbows, 
and tucked underneath a plain black vest with matching pants. It was Billy Brooks, the first appointed marshal of Dodge City. I squinted my eyes and looked out once more, and he was gone. I remembered Billy Brooks, a man not of unusual size, rather slender with normal-length hair. If it were not for his displayed white-handled six-shooter and gun belt, he would have looked more like a clown than a dangerous gunfighter. His pants were baggy with an unbuttoned vest, and he wore a ridiculous hat. In October of 1872, Brooks relocated to a crude outpost called Buffalo City. This was to be the town called Dodge City, created by the AT and SF Railroad, arrival on September 5th, 1872. A town that sprang up and became an outfitting and marketing center for the Hyde Hunters. The Hyde Hunters were carrying on the great buffalo slaughter that was in the progress of the plains of western Kansas. Living with Billy Brooks at Buffalo City was one of the dance hall damsels, a 21-year-old named Matilda. Matilda was small in stature with pale, delicate features, large, bright eyes and short, curly hair. She took his name and passed as his wife, although it's unlikely there was ever a formal marriage. In early Dodge City, the propensity for violent behavior that characterizes Brooks' short career became evident. It was there that he lost the Appalachian Buffalo Bill and came to be called Bully Billy. It was told he received the Bully Billy moniker when he invented a new Keeley Cure method. Billy and his gambling friends would lay the victim in the city water trough, with his head well above the waterline. He was then allowed to soak into cold water until he sobered up. When he dragged himself out of the trough, the boys were on hand to taunt him with not being about to carry his share of the city's chain lightning. One night, a buffalo hunter named McGill entered James Hanrahan's Occident Saloon. A McGill was from Texas, and he was known to enjoy himself at the bar. After he'd finished his drink, the cowboy goes outside, only to find his horse has been stolen. So McGill goes back into the bar, flips his gun into the air, catches it over his head without looking, and fires a shot into the ceiling. <laughs> Sitting in the back of the room was Billy Brooks and Matt Sullivan, Brooks's gambling partner. Hey there, angrily yells McGill. Which one of you fools stole me horse? But the saloon becomes silent as no one answers. McGill fires off two more shots and angrily yells, All right, I'm going to have one more beer and if my horse ain't back outside by the time I finish, I'm going to do what I did in Texas. And let me tell you, I don't like to have to do what I did in Texas. Some of the locals became nervous and shifted in their seats. Even Billy Brooks takes the shallow road. I'll pay him no mind. Now play your next card because I think Miguel may have played all of his, whispered Brooks, looking at the cards in front of him. Miguel has another beer as he said he would and then walks outside. Surprisingly, his horse had been returned and tied to the post where he had originally left it. So Miguel saddles up and starts to ride out of town. Brooks sees Miguel and walks out of the bar along with some of the locals and asks him, I say, Miguel, before you go, what happened in Texas? Miguel turns to Brooks and says, I had to walk home. 
Ruxton yells out, It's time for the Keeley Cure, boys. It was after Miguel received the Keeley Cure that he became outraged and shut up the Occident Saloon. Miguel then mounted his horse and rode out of town. It did not take the Vigilance Committee long to respond to Miguel's destructive behavior. John Scott of Peacock's Billiard Saloon and James Hanrahan of the Occident Saloon chased down Miguel. Miguel made it just outside of town when he decided to take his needle gun and open fire on Hanrahan and Scott. The response was deadly. Hanrahan and Scott returned to Dodge City with Miguel, less of his fines for damages, but he paid properly. McGill was strapped over his horse and riddled with bullets. Adding to the infamous character of Billy Brooks was his shooting of a man two days before Christmas in 1872. Brooks, acting assistant marshal, shot Brownie, the yardmaster, through the head over a girl by the name of Captain Drew. Brownie was removed to an old deserted room in the Dodge House, and his girl, Captain Drew, waited on him, and indeed she was a faithful nurse. The ball entered the back of his head, and one could plainly see the bloody matter oozing out of the wound, until it mattered over. One of the finest surgeons in the U.S. Army attended him. About the second day after the shooting, I went with this surgeon to see him. He and his girl were both crying. He was crying for something to eat, as she was crying because she could not give it to him. She said, A doctor, he wants fat bacon and cabbage and potatoes, and fat greasy beef, and says he's starving. The doctor said to her, Oh, well, let him have whatever he wants. It's only a question of time, and short time for him here on earth. But it's astounding how strong he keeps. You see, the ball is in his head, and if I probe for it, it'll kill him instantly. Now, there was no ball in his head. The ball entered one side of his head and came out the other, just breaking one of the brain cell pans at the back of his head. The third day and the fourth day, he was alive. On the fifth day... They took him east to a hospital. As soon as the old blood and matter was washed off, they saw what was the matter, and he soon got well and was back at his old job in a few months. It was March 4th when I witnessed Billy's next encounter with a buffalo hunter by the name of Jordan. Brooks took a resting place against an awning pole across the street from the saloon. He looked out into the street with some confidence while flashing his two pearl-handled holstered revolvers. Brooks was a shabby character sporting a narrow mustache with a long rounded face trimmed out in a Van Dyke goatee. He wore a tall circular crowned black hat supported by a collarless linen shirt. This slipshod dress gave the appearance to everyone who regarded him as a dangerous man. I looked back in the direction of the saloon and saw Jordan pick up his rifle. He steadied against the door facing, took aim, and was about to fire when a man stumbled out between Jordan and his target. Jordan raised the gun to avoid shooting the man. Brooks, from his vantage point, must have caught the motion of Jordan's gun barrel. He suddenly threw himself into a sitting position on the ground behind two barrels of water, trying at the same time to draw one of his guns. Somehow the gun hammer hung, and he failed to pull it from the holster. Jordan, not seeing Brooks, fired at the barrel. Brooks hid behind. The 50 caliber bullet from Jordan Sharp's rifle spat a red flame against the afternoon sun. 
The bullet went through the barrel and lodged in the metal hoop, but cut a hole through it, so the water spouted out and ran down Brooks's neck. Brooks's ears strained for more sounds, or more clues as to where the next shot would land. Jordan, taking his single shot had killed Brooks, chopped on his horse and rode off. I was told later that Brooks could not stand the gaff of his cowardly move of ducking behind the barrel. Within a few days of the Jordan fuss, Brooks took the rag off the bush, procured departure without notice as city marshal, skedaddled from Dodge and became a full-time slum guzzler. I walked back to the Lady Gay Saloon and decided to wait for my posse of friends, who had summoned me to help administer the Keeley Cure. So I decided on my own to look for the next victim of the Keeley Cure. I had been told he was severely crippled, but was a brilliant judge who was addicted to the liquor habit. The judge not only neglected his family, but his legal practice as well. His conduct became disgusting to the better element among Dodge City citizens, and it was time to break him out of his habit. I searched every saloon on the south side of the tracks, and then decided to head over to the Long Branch Saloon. This is where I found the judge, slumped over the bar with an empty whiskey bottle next to him. That's him, said one of the boys. Our victim was spotted, so the boys and I decided to administer an appropriate dose of Dodge City's Keeley Cure to the judge. As the judge got up to leave the bar, he fell into a drunken stupor. The boys and I obtained a coffin and attired the judge in his conventional black shroud. We fixed him up as carefully as though we were preparing a body for its last sleep, except for the embalming. We powdered his face to give him the unnatural appearance of death. To make matters worse, we tied his jaws together and placed him in the coffin. There he lay in state, in full view of everyone who passed by. Many people thought he really was dead. A placard made and placed by the coffin read, Judge Wise is dead. That good old man, we ne'er shall see him more. We ne'er shall see his face, nor hear his gentle roar. In police court saying guilty, your honor. Some front street loafers gathered a large bunch of sunflowers and wove them into a large wreath. They attached a card bearing the inscription, Gone, but we don't know where. The judge remained in the coffin for hours before he became conscious of the world about him. As night closed in, some wags put two lighted candles in an empty beer bottles and placed him at the head and foot of the coffin. The victim of the prank was a hideous sight, and after taking one look at himself in the saloon mirror, ran for home utterly disgusted with himself. He sobered up, and was never known to take a drink in Dodge City afterwards. He became one of the frontier town's most respected citizens, and held several offices of honour and trust. While the first two remedies were not surefire cures, the third, at least, in the case of Judge Wise, proved very useful, and can be recommended highly in other instances of a similar nature. Thank you, Brad. Now we have a few questions. Uh, The differences between the facts and the fictions of the story. At the beginning of the podcast, we mentioned the fact that Luke McGlue is a fictitious character. How many pranks was Luke McGlue's name associated with? 
And what were some of the pranks pulled under the Luke McGlue name? Well, we have no idea really how many uh, pranks were were pulled in Dodge City uh, under the guise of uh, blaming Luke McGlue. Uh, we do know a few that were reported on or, or told in, in hearsay over the years. Uh, but yeah, Luke was just one of those characters. He was the uh, he was the local scapegoat. You know, if you if uh, your mule winds up stolen or dirty words are painted on the water tower, well, go find Luke McGlue. Luke's probably the one at fault. Well, Luke was real hard to find because he he never did exist. But uh, we know things like uh, oh, some of the old uh, gambler con men types would uh, would often use Luke as a scapegoat for jokes that they pulled on each other. Uh, one time we know that, that one of them was, was in the, uh, uh, in the bed chambers with a, a, uh, lady of his acquaintance and, and Bat Masterson and a few of the other, the boys, as they're often referred to would, uh, would sneak up on him and uh, wake him in uh, flagrante delecto. I think the, the term is, uh, just sort of scare the pants off him if the, the pants weren't off of him already. Uh, things like the Indian Act uh, that Chockley Beeson and many of the other uh, old-timers were known to do. Every time a, a new greenhorn came to Dodge City, they would uh, they would take him out on a hunt buffalo hunting expedition uh, out west, uh, southwest of town, and... Uh, they would tell him that they were likely to run into Indians uh, not too far out of town. Uh, and they would whip him up into just a, a terror, uh, get him all scared of the, the local Indian population. And they would, uh, of course, take all of the bullets out of his gun. Uh, and then when they got far enough out of town, uh, Beeson and some of the other boys, they would ride down, uh, ride down the hill, uh, whooping and hollering a bunch of Indian garb, much of which had, had probably been uh, brought back from Adobe walls, uh, just screaming wild, bloody murder and scare the man to death. And they, he would race back to town. And usually that was his first and last day in Dodge City uh, until one time that happened. And even after they had unloaded the man's gun. Uh, the guy had gotten so scared that he went and actually got an extra gun and put in his pocket, uh, uh, his boot, actually. And when he pulled his gun that the uh, the Luke McGlue crowd had unloaded uh, and it didn't work, he pulled the gun from his boot and started firing at the, the fake Indians. And that was the end of the Indian Act. But uh, Luke McGlue was, was very famous for the Indian Act. Uh, Bat Masterson was one of the great practical jokers of his time, especially of Dodge City. Uh, there are several stories of Luke or of uh, of Bat Masterson as Luke McGlue, uh, and he even corralled Wyatt Earp into assisting him on a couple of occasions. And Earp was not known for his sense of humor, generally. Uh, so the fact uh, that Bat's charisma uh, pulling the the Luke stunts on on locals and, and others, uh, that why it could get pulled suckered into that, uh, speaks highly to, to his character and just the, the fun loving nature of the Luke McGlue crowd. In the story, we mentioned Lizzie Palmer. How accurate is the story's account to what was known about Palmer? Well, the, the Lizzie Palmer story is one of my favorites, uh, of old Dodge. Um, 
Lizzie was clearly quite a woman. We the, the story about the the love interest of Bat Masterson is we don't know with a hundred percent certain certainty that he was the cause of it of a, a love scuffle uh, with Lizzie and another girl over the affections of Bat. Uh, and maybe we we'll never know for sure, but what we do know is that she was uh, in a fight with another girl uh, of the working profession out in the street, which was not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, you know, cat fights are are a thing, and uh, whether during the injury sustained during the fight itself uh, or or what, she got a cut in her scalp, and the unsanitary nature of the Dodge City streets at that time. The cut became infected, uh, quickly festered, and Lizzie died very shortly thereafter. So uh, in regards to the, the story that we tell in the, the recording itself, uh, yes, yes, very accurate. Uh, and of course, it, it continues with uh, the speaks highly to Lizzie's character and what a what an incredible woman that she must have been. The fact that all of the cowboys and those who knew her got together to pay for her funeral, uh, which is another story entirely. If you like the Luke McGlue stories, you can go to Wild West Podcast at buzzsprout.com and search for Luke McGlue and the Traveling Salesman. And this yarn is on you, Luke McGlue. That's it for now. We hope you enjoyed our show, and remember you can check out all of our Wild West Podcast shows on Player FM Series Wild West Podcast, iTunes Podcast, Spotify, Amazon, AnyPod, or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. We would like to conclude our show by reminding our listeners to check out our up-and-coming digital bookstore by visiting boothillproductions.com and select publications. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Boot Hill Distillery. And if you would like to sponsor our show, just send us an email at wildwestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City at worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com or by visiting our new Facebook page at www.facebook.com Wild West Podcast. Thank you.